What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Tom and Jay take a look at the following stories. The first energy domestic corruption scandal, Rick Messick in the GAB blog, and Matt Kelly in Radical Compliance. What are obstacles to compliance training? Dick Kasson tells us more in the FCPA blog. Should companies go into space? Mike Volkov says no in his Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. Is your compliance relationship with HR unleavened? Then leaven it, says Amy Dufresne in Corporate Compliance Insights. Can the Olympics be saved? Perhaps from the corruption angle, Andy Spaulding in the FCPA blog. What's it like to be a whistleblower? Aaron Nicodemus tells us more in a five-part series on Compliance Week. What happens when a CCO acts like a GC? They step in it, says Matt Kelly in Radical Compliance. Are you afraid of your own shadow? Michael Rasmussen says you might as well should be, and Navix Global Risk and Compliance Matters blog. If you step in it, rackets is Negozi Oka and Practical ESG, and boards and corporate strategies and a post-pandemic world. Wachtell Lipton Lawyers and the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. All this and more on This Week in FCPA, episode 263. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 263 for the week ending, July 31, 2021, the domestic corruption edition. Jay, as the Tokyo Olympics continue and, and First Energy settles one of the largest domestic corruption cases uh, ever. I wanted to uh, maybe take a week, uh, take a look at the week's top stories in compliance and ethics in this domestic corruption edition. What say you? Tell me all about domestic corruption. So First Energy uh, settled uh, this case late last week. Both Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Rick Messick over at the uh, Global anti-corruption blog, uh, both wrote about it. We linked to it, of course, in the show notes. And uh, it was a really interesting case. Uh, Probably the biggest message for compliance professionals is remember that domestic corruption can be equally invidious as international corruption made illegal under the FCPA, and that you need to uh, keep your own domestic house in order as well. Uh, Rick listed, uh, they both did a great recitation of the facts. Rick had some uh, additional lessons he felt were learned from the case. One was on victim uh, compensation, where the consumers in, uh, who were penalized by the actions of First Energy and the uh, corrupt officials, government officials who passed legislation benefiting the senior executives from the company, not even the company, uh, are going to be compensated. How can you control wayward agents and employees? It's through oversight. Uh, Both Rick and Matt really wrote about uh, the dark money or political 
political contributions that uh, became the basis of the bribery payments. Uh, this was uh, they were it was a clear quid pro quo going on here. So there was no real um, argument that this was just political lobbying, which of course is guaranteed under the U.S. Constitution. So uh, a lot to unpack here. It was a massive DPA and settlement agreement. Uh, I was uh, devolved into looking at something different this week. So probably take a look at this case later down the road, but a lot of lessons and really the over overarching and overriding lesson, Jay, is, and we have to remind our uh, listeners, our customers, our clients, and every everyone else we talk to that domestic corruption is real, and it can be just as illegal as uh, corruption under the FCPA, and that you have to have policies, procedures, and oversight for uh, domestic uh payments, whether they be to third parties, whether they be political uh, contributions, whether they be advertising, marketing, or any of the other ways that money can uh, create a uh, uh, company can create a pot of money to pay abroad. Tom, it wouldn't be a week in the FCPA if we didn't speak to Dick Casson, founder of the FCPA blog. Uh, Dick takes a look at five obstacles that can impede compliance training. Compliance training doesn't always work. Sometimes trainers and trainees don't click. Sessions can be flat, trainees unengaged, bored, and sleepy. What's gone wrong? Well, here are five things that can cause training to fail. It's all about the company and not the trainees. Protecting the organization from the criminal and civil liability is important. But when the only reason for compliance is the company's welfare, trainees are likely to quickly tune out. Everyone wants to know, how does this impact me? The training will help you stay employed and out of legal trouble. Two. It's just another rule book. More rules? There are really way too many rules already. So if compliance training is a litany of do's and don'ts, most trainees will withdraw, leading to such thought bubbles as, will this ever end? I'm wondering what I'll have for dinner, and maybe I can snooze with my eyes open. Number three, it sounds like criticism. When compliance trainers are careless, they can bruise egos. We know you guys are cutting some corners on due diligence. You know, everyone reacts badly to criticism. Defense mechanisms kick in, and when that happens, trainees stop being trainable. Four, the bosses say one thing but do another. Maybe training that day is about encouraging and protecting whistleblowers, but every training has heard the story about a colleague who was harassed, fired, financially ruined, and blacklisted because they flagged a compliance concern. When trainees don't trust the C-suite or its mouthpiece, training flops. Finally, compliance becomes corporate communication. Even good companies are guilty of draining the life out of compliance. Leaders reduce the program to a bloodless technical exercise. These requirements are designed to prevent violations of applicable laws, rules, and regulations, blah, blah, blah. In contrast, messages tied to values are authentic and relatable. Bribery is morally repulsive and victimized of innocent people in these ways. Trainees welcome that perspective, and they want to hear more, and they want to be able to do more. There's always a technical side, but according to Dick, it's the human side that engage us humans. Tom, back to you. Jay, we had a uh, really interesting article from Mike Volkov, and I must say I wouldn't have expected this from Mike, but uh, he basically criticized Jeff Bezos for going into space. And he wrapped it around a blog post entitled The Danger of an Out-of-Touch C-Suite. Um, although he probably would tell us it's not about Bezos, it's Bezos' picture 
who's on the blog, and I don't think the message is uh, can be any less clear. And so he worries about uh, executives really getting uh, uh, losing losing focus and losing touch, and that uh, he even throws in some criticism of the VSG. So um, he uh, he really wants uh, executives to be in touch with all of their stakeholders, their shareholders, their employees, their customers, their vendors, the places where they do business, their localities, and that um, corporate leaders need to have emotional intelligence. So while Jeff Bezos probably shouldn't have said thank you to all the customers of Amazon who put me in space, you know, he he did it. He, he spent the money and he had the vision and I don't criticize him for that vision. Um, Amazon seems to be doing pretty well, throwing as much money as they are into their space program. So um, it's definitely a different view. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to put it in here. Certainly not my view. I haven't asked your opinion on that, but uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, well, well done, Michael. Uh, so next up, we have something by Amy Dufresne writing in the Corporate Compliance Insights. And uh, she says, don't shop your values, level HR to 11 compliance risk. HR should play an active role in your as your organization seeks to instill a strong culture of ethics and compliance. Here, HR CI CEO Amy Dufresne discusses what the HR team can do to cultivate employees' sense of ownership and pride over the workplace ethics and compliance. Put your money where your mouth is, the saying goes. It turns out many people just do that. They shop their values. When consumers believe a brand has a strong purpose, they're four times more likely to purchase from that company and four and a half times more likely to recommend it to family and friends. Many workers seek an engaging, supportive, and ethical workplace experience, and they're increasingly willing to walk if they don't find it. Here's how to cultivate a sense of ownership and pride over workplace ethics and compliance. First, be proactive, not punitive. Don't develop policies that are based on assuming the worst intentions from your employees. They're likely to only cultivate frustration. There's always a temptation to add restrictions Blindly following rules, however, won't help employees appreciate the significance of their everyday actions. Instead, you need employees to feel a sense of autonomy. Without a larger ecosystem of purpose and accountability, workplace processes can seem arbitrary and controlling. If you explain that your processes are designed to save money, energy, or time, however, then employees will be compelled to follow them. Leaning into your culture for compliance takes a lot of hard work but it gives employees a sense of agency that transcends policies and rules. And that's how you cultivate a strong sense of ownership over ethics and compliance. Show, your act show that you actually value your values. For a culture of compliance to take root, leadership has to model ways to keep values front and center in an organization, encourage transparency and connect every decision from the C-suite back to some component of your value statement. The importance of individual intent. For your workforce to take ownership of compliance, your value statement must become a cornerstone document and then build on that foundation with specific guideposts. Ultimately, behaviors drive compliance. Provide guidelines that help direct how your values are expressed through actions. Having established clear definitions, consider each potential violation on an individual basis, making certain to consider the intent. Cultivate compliance conversations. 
You don't have to wait for something to go wrong to clarify how organizational values should be lived. Demonstrate that values are a priority by facilitating regular conversations about how they should be expressed or used when making daily decisions. Develop some thought-provoking hypotheticals with potential outcomes ranging from mundane to the clear ethics violations, and then train managers to pose these questions to their teams and lead discussions about which choice is correct. The more employers are willing to think deeply about the error actions impact, how their actions impact compliance and how these values can be used to make the right to decision, the more they'll adopt the, this process in their everyday business actions. Keep open channels. Maintaining an open line of communication at times can be easier said than done, even if you encourage employees to come to you and insist they do so without fill up reprisal, power dynamics may still prevent some from approaching. While transparency is ideal, develop anonymous channels for feedback too. And remember, in this area, your work is never done. Culture isn't static, so your efforts to direct workforce culture towards a sense of ethics and compliance ownership can't be either. Update guidance regularly to respond to internal and external events that impact behaviors in the workplace. The world and the ways we perceive it are continually evolving. Make sure you do your part to ensure your company and its employees can do as well. Tom? Jay and I will be right back after this short message. Jay, we have an article, our second article from the FCPA blog, but this time it's from Andy Spaulding. And uh, Andy uh, has been working with the Paris Olympic Committee in human rights and bribery and corruption issues through a group he's formed, uh, the Olympics Compliance Task Force. In full disclosure, I'm a part of this task force. Um, the issue that I've been working on, on that Andy writes about in this blog is that the Olympic Games have typically been associated with chronic corruption and human rights uh, problems and violations. And in 2017, the International Olympic Committee amended the host city contract to include obligations around uh, both anti-corruption and human rights due diligence for the first time. And then he put together the Olympics Compliance Task Force to take a look at some of the um, clauses in this uh, model contract and how they might actually play out in the real world. So we worked on that, uh, I think, uh, basically in 2018 and 2019 uh, for the task force. So we hope to see some major changes. We hope that in Paris, the first time that we'll see a, a chief compliance officer uh, in, in a role for the uh, organizing committee of Paris and that they'll implement now the French law sapendu as well as some of the suggestions we've made. And uh, I'm not sure how I feel about the Olympics after uh, this Olympics, Jay. I think maybe their time has passed. Nevertheless, uh, as they move forward, at least for the near future, uh, I think the infrastructure, the backbone, the framework will be in place to uh, prevent uh, both uh, corruption issues and human rights abuses from going forward. So it's uh, Andy says he's going to write several pieces during the Tokyo Olympics, so we may be checking in with him again in future episodes of this week in FCPA. Um, Jay, what's it like to be a whistleblower? It's a great question, Tom, and Compliance Week's uh, reporter Aaron Nicodemus is uh, tackling this in a six-part series called Witness to Wrongdoing, Whistleblowers Share Their Stories. Uh, we've linked to the Compliance Week URL in the show notes. Unfortunately, that's behind a script subscription wall, 
but Aaron also discusses this series on this edition of From the Editor's Desk, which we link to and has no subscription required. As of recording time, four articles have been released so far. Number one is Finding the Fraud, Finding the Fraud launches whistleblowers on a life-changing journey. Whistleblowers aren't born, they're made. Next, internal reporting sends whistleblowers down the path alone. Almost no one becomes a whistleblower by choice. Blowing the whistle weighs uncertainty against moral duty, and once the individual featured in this series decides to blow the whistle, their lives are irreparably and forever changed. And finally, retaliation pervades while whistleblowers persevere. Many whistleblowers experience retaliation for coming forward, and it comes in all types of forms. In these articles, as well as the remaining two episodes, Aaron brings to life the stories of the following whistleblowers. Aaron Ristrick, a deputy sheriff in Michigan. Brendan Delaney worked as a software technician from New York City's Division of Healthcare Access Improvement. After 10 years as a constant pianist in the United States and Europe, Andrew Russo returned to his home in upstate New York and pivoted to a new career in finance, investment, and tax preparation. Jeffrey Smith is a California-based software developer who founded a company on the go wireless that provided a unique service both the wireless companies and their corporate customers. And last but not least, Dee Dee Stone had her master's degree in accounting, but had not yet received her certified public accounting CPA alliance in 2011 when she was asked by a CPA, David Ronald Allen, to help process tax returns. None of these people planned on being whistleblowers, and Aaron's series sheds light on how they discovered their fraud and how their lives drastically changed upon deciding to become whistleblowers. Uh, Jay, uh, let me just add to your presentation that in the month of August, Compliance Week will be holding a virtual open house, and they're going to open their firewall to anyone who wants to look at Compliance Week articles for the entire month. Um, Dave Leeford and I, the uh, Dave's the editor-in-chief at Compliance Week, we recorded a podcast where we had Aaron uh, th earlier this week, and it's going to post tomorrow, Friday, uh, from the editor's desk. And in the show notes to that podcast, we'll have uh, the link to the open house offer. So uh, we cite uh, Compliance Week articles quite a bit in this podcast, recognizing they are behind a firewall, but in August, they're not. Uh, Compliance Week has some great resources. Uh, you should check it out. The articles are great. The resources are great. Uh, and uh, best of all, it will be free. So uh, check out what Jay has reported uh, about Aaron's six-part series uh, for yourself. So, Jay, what happens when a CCO steps in it? Because the coolest guy in compliance is back for a double header um, or perhaps a, a double hit on This Week in FCPA with his blog post, Activists. Activision CCO steps into the mess. And if I could uh, give a little background, Activision is uh, Act Activision is a gaming company that was sued by the state of California for sexual harassing uh, culture. So um, that is not in and itself unusual. The harassment suit alleged cube crawls where males got drunk and wandered from one female cube to another, harassing the employees hitting on co-workers at companies, events, and trade shows. There's even a case where a female employee who was having an affair with a male employee, or actually her male boss, killed herself because he was showing um, compromising photos of her uh, in the office. So uh, some pretty serious claims, Jay. And 
Activision responded as you would have expected with uh, along the lines of the lawsuit included, quote, distorted and in many cases false descriptions of the company's past. Uh, however, a senior executive um, sent out an email to all employees where he said that um, uh, basically did not deny the allegations and said that uh, we have to do a better job and we have to work towards a better culture. Into this steps the CCO, Francis Townsend, who also sends out <clears throat> a email blast to all employees where she said that the lawsuit presented a distorted and untrue picture of our company, including factually inaccurate, old, and out-of-context stories. The employees at Activision literally went into revolt. And when I say revolt, Jay, I mean uh, collective action, which in the parlance of the working man, and it's called a strike. The employees got so mad they went out on strike today as, as we're recording this. Uh, because this stuff was always going on. And uh, for a CCO to say that is about as um, inappropriate as I can think of. General counsel say it because, hey, we're lawyers and that's what we do. Uh, and their job as general counsel is to defend the company. But a CCO's job is to prevent, detect, and remediate with a big emphasis on remediation. If you have a broken culture, uh, first of all, I would suggest they call affiliated monitors but the second thing I would say after you call affiliated monitors is hire them to help you fix it. Um, and when a CCO denies these kinds of allegations in a lawsuit uh, with an employee base who feels very strongly the opposite, it's a big, big problem. Um, so whether uh, Ms. Townsend will remain a CCO, whether she will resign to pursue other opportunities, whether she will uh, rigorously defend the company, from the CCO position. It's unknown at any of those at this point, but if you're a CCO, uh, don't uh, step in it would be my advice. Jay, um, are any of the Rosens afraid of their own shadow? No, uh, well, maybe Latka Rosen because he's a little scary, scary dog, but my, my daughters and wife are both fearless. All, all of them are fearless. Uh, we're going to check in with Navix Global's Risk and Compliance Matter blog this week. And we've got an article by Michael Rasmussen, who's talking about if you are you afraid of your own shadow, Michael, Michael says you might well should be. Are you scared of shadows? You should be, as they can cause serious legal operational compliance risk, brand reputation, and integrity liability. For the past several years, organizations have been battling shadow IT. This is the use of IT technology, applications, devices, software, and services within departments, and they bypass IT, get the services without proper approvals. Now there's a new shadow to be scared of, shadow policies. There are rogue policies that are being written all the time at all levels of your organization without proper review and approval. This puts the organization at significant risk to legal liability. Policies set a legal duty of care for an organization, and if a manager is communicating to employees and clients a policy, this establishes a potential exposure to the organization. If an employee, client, or other third party is harmed, and they can point back to a policy that a manager communicated, it opens the doors of liability. The issue is that organizations do not have a handle on their policies. 
Many lack a consistent portal template or style guide. It's like the Wild West with every department writing their own policies. The risk of shadow policies is growing within organizations. A business might be carefully crafted back to work policies combined with a personal protective equipment policy, vaccine po vaccination policies and more. The issue is rogue managers thinking they're a little bit smarter than their organization and writing shadow policies contrary to official ones. So how do you combat this shadow policy? Here's what you need to know. Write your policies on writing policies. It might seem a little bit redundant, but every organization have a should have a policy on writing policies, also called a meta policy. This establishes the overall policy management framework, how policies will be written and approved, and how they're maintained and distributed within the organization. Develop policy management templates and style guides. Official policies, whether in print or online, should be easily recognizable by the template they're in, how they're indexed and numbered, and even the writing style and tone. Provide a central policy management portal. All policies should be on a central portal so employees can easily access and find the policies related to their roles and function. Educate your workforce. Communicate to employees what a policy is, how they can be found. Instruct them that if they find anything that is being communicated as policy, that is not in the defined template and cannot be verified back to enterprise policy management portal, then they need to report along where they should report to. And finally, audit for rogue policies. Companies can utilize technology such as e-discovery solutions to scan file servers and more to find policies. Shadow policies like shadow IT are a growing concern for organizations and required a structured and continuous process incorporating the elements defined above to reduce liability. This is not a one-time issue to address, but a continuous challenge to monitor. Tom? So Jay, we probably should have had our next story. Uh, you should have taken this one up immediately after our story about the CCO stepping in it, because this story comes to us from Practical ESG and editor Ngozi Oke, and it is entitled, what to do when you say the wrong thing. And she lets out a very simple framework uh, for when you step in it. It's entitled Recover, Don't React. So some of the questions you need to start with are, do you understand why the comment was wrong? Do you genuinely have remorse about your statement? And are you willing to lean into your vulnerability by leading with transparency? Uh, CCO Townsend, she's got to ask herself these questions. But she, um, she lays out a framework uh, that you can follow. Educate yourself as to uh, understand what went wrong so you can articulate an answer. Anchor the situation in a company or, or value that you want to establish. Talk about your misstep openly, clearly, and humbly. Uh, a good word for you, Mr. Rosen, humbly. And then um, when, you, when you catch a future misstep by relying on this framework, uh, uh, recognize you're wrong, apologize for the impact, and commit to change. So, uh, like I said, I thought that it was, uh, we probably should have followed up uh, Matt's article with this, but nevertheless, it's a good framework for uh, moving past a misstep and probably good uh, for all of us. Jay, uh, we continue to see articles about uh, corporate strategy in a post-pandemic world. Do we have something on that this week? We do, and this always seems to be the position that we check in with the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, 
We've got an article from Martin Lipton, William Savitt, Stephen Rosenblum, Adam Emmerich, and Carissa Kane, all who are attorneys at Walkton Liptel. In order to advise their clients, Walkton Liptel tries to closely follow emerging and changing issues, developments, and problems. In reviewing the matters they've been dealing with and the memos they have written in the past two years, they thought it would be helpful to list the high-profile standout issues for attention needed by the C-suite. And this is covered in two, three uh, pieces that we link to entitled Spotlight on Boards, Some Thoughts for Boards of Directors in 2021, and Risk Management and Board of Directors. Here are 10 salient uh, uh, things to look for. Number one, there is no true pandemic, no true post-pandemic world. Viruses mutate at the rate that requires ongoing adjustments to adjust the situation as it develops. And the pandemic experience will result in demand for major changes in all aspects of healthcare. Two, the demand for inclusive capitalism continues to grow with greater demands for inclusion, diversity, and equality. Number three, climate change is likely to require even more substantial changes than presently recognized, as will other sustainability and long-term growth objectives. Four, cybersecurity efforts must be continually increased to stay ahead of the game. Five, the risk of mass personal injury liability continues to grow, and product safety and the introduction of new products needs to take this into account. Six, supply chains will need to be continued to be adjusted to address technological climate and political disruption. Seven, the interplay between human capital and technological changes like AI will need to be managed. Eight, focus will grow on the impact of internet social media, a new areas like securities training, and there is a potential for major legislative and regulatory change affecting all internet social media. Nine, businesses will be subject to unstable local, national, and international political situations, especially as it affects tariffs, taxes, and global financial systems, and 10, management directors will still come under increasing pressure to reduce negative externalities and to manage in the interest of all stakeholders, including the importance of enterprise level risk management. Tom, what do we have for podcasts and webinars? So Jay, we had a, a big week on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, Jonathan Kellerman on the Compliance Handbook reviewed the evolution of healthcare compliance. Jonathan is a partner at Stone Turn, but he started out in the consulting business uh, with an MBA, so a little bit different focus. His, he comes from a family of physicians, but he went into healthcare through the business side of things, so he brings a very interesting perspective. Our colleague Scott Moritz from FDI Consulting turned the tables on me, Jay, and interviewed me about uh, my book, The Compliance Handbook. Uh, it's out in this week's edition of Fraud Each Strategy. We concluded The Compliance Life with Asha Palmer, where she looked at the CECO role in 2025 and beyond. If you're a, a fan of uh, ancient Greek or Roman history, Richard Lummis and I continue our exploration of Plutarch's lives in this episode of 12 O'Clock High. This, uh, in this episode, we looked at the Greek Cleomenes and the Roman Gaius Gracchus. So check uh, those out. Jade, do your um, affiliated, are any of your affiliated monitor colleagues going to be uh, speaking uh, that you could tell us about? Yeah, we've got another episode of our uh, new podcast that dropped yesterday on the 28th, AMI's uh, Integrity Through Compliance. 
and my colleagues, affiliated monitors, Dion Lomax and Mintz's uh, Joseph Miller, uh, together get together and take a look at upcoming antitrust changes and reforms expected in the Biden administration. Uh, we will link to that in the show notes, and we can also find it on uh, both the AMI homepage as well as the Your Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, anything about the new book, Tom? Well, the new book is doing uh, very, very well. Uh, we're moving up to uh, some really high numbers, so uh, check the book out. Um, I'm going to be on a few more podcasts, so it will be more information. I'm having an extraordinarily cool uh, a video ad developed uh, for me that's being uh, produced up now as we speak. And I've got some great testimonials out from a lot of our colleagues. So uh, check out the Compliance Handbook, uh, second edition. Jay, you want to take us home? Yeah, first, I wanted to go off the cuff. Uh, speaking of high numbers, do you know what popular British uh, quartet was known as the high numbers before they broke it big? Do I need to believe that was the music? Beatles? No, it was the who. All right. Well, thank you for playing mm. rock and roll trivia. On behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, not Don Pardo. And I am known as Mr. Monitor. I can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 263 for the week ending July 30th, 2021, the Domestic Corruption Edition. We appreciate you spending part of your week with us and look forward to speaking with you next week when Tom and I will take a look at this week and FCPA. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.